I'd like for you to turn to first to Second Timothy chapter one. And I want to preach a series beginning today, a series of sermons on the way God makes us or the shaping of us. All from the first, uh, first chapter of Second Timothy. How he makes us, what kind of person he makes, and the nature of the work to which we are being created. That is, the nature of this thing that God has planned for us as he shapes and molds us. But to introduce this series today on how God makes us a man, the person he can use. Verses 3 through 7. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did. As I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. Longing to see you even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm sure that it is in you as well. And for this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift God, the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and of discipline. This is Paul's last imprisonment. He knows that he'll not walk out of this jail alive. And he's giving last instructions to a young disciple by the name of Timothy. Really what he's doing is, is unloading the burden of the, of the ministry on to this young man. He's dumping it all on him. Watch the maturing and developing and process in the life of Timothy, and he knows he's ready for this new responsibility to carry the gospel to the world. And he's watched Timothy's progress to that place. One of the advantages of being in a church as a pastor for some length of time is that you have the privilege of seeing children grow and mature the process of their maturing and, and their growing that goes back really before they were born. Um, and that process starts there and them grow and mature, as well as to see adults who come to know Christ and know how to walk with the Lord and see that process of maturing develop as they assume new responsibilities and, and take on new burdens of serving God. It's a wonderful thing to see the growing and maturing process. That process actually goes back to before we were born. This process of growing and maturing is the fashioning of God to become what God, what eternity planned for us. The fashioning of God to become what eternity planned. Now, one of the interesting things about this thing is that, that to, to see how, how, what God uses to shape us and to fashion us. 
to see the instruments that God uses to make us what He wants us to be. Before a builder builds a house, he has a plan, and he gets together all the instruments and the tools, so to speak, to implement that plan. And I think that eternity has a plan for each of us, and God gets together all of those instruments and tools that He wants to use to fashion us. So what are those things that God uses? That's what we're about this morning. What are those instruments, for the want of a better word, that God employs to shape us and fashion us into people that eternity planned for us to be? Well, I think he uses, first of all, our physical background. Now, Paul says, speaking of himself, whom I serve, thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did. Now, my Bible has a little footnote and has it like this, from my forefathers. It's the exact translation of the King James, the real Bible, from my forefathers. Now, there's some debate as to the best translation of that phrase. I think that in the context, the King James rendering is better. What Paul is saying is that I've served God from my forefathers. Now, does that seem a little strange to you? You'd think that Paul would say that I've served God ever since I was converted on a Damascus road. Now, what was he doing back before he, he came to that conversion experience in Damascus? Well, he is killing Christians what he was doing. And if I were to, you know, set down the five most important things in serving the Lord, going out and killing Christians would not make the top five. And if I'm going to write a biography of the Apostle Paul's service to God, I'm going to probably start with his conversion. That's not what Paul's, where he starts. In fact, he's saying this, that when I begin to understand the shaping of God in my life, I had to go all the way back to my forefathers. And he understood that while he was sitting at the feet of Gamaliel and learning all about Judaism, God was preparing him. For when he started to take the gospel to the world, where did he go? He went to the synagogue. And there in that synagogue, he had these people who were already gathered together to worship Yahweh. And on this foundation of Judaism, of which he was an expert, he began to build the gospel message to the hearts of people. He could trace the way God was shaping his life all the way back to his forefathers. And then he says of Timothy, he said, I've seen that unfeigned faith that's in you in your mother and in your grandmother. For what we are as a believer and as a servant of God goes back to include how we were raised and how we were trained and what we were taught and the example we saw in the lives of our parents. And if you read a biography, that biography never begins with the birth of the person they're writing about. It always goes back to the parents and the grandparents and the forefathers. When you begin to see how God shapes and molds you, you need to go back and understand that He uses the people before you. I read an interesting um, thing the other day about the people who serve in Christian vocations. And the writer of this article said that the great majority of people who are serving churches come from homes of dedicated Christians, I mean totally committed families, 
or they come from homes that are totally pagan, have no interest in God whatsoever. But very few people who serve in Christian vocational life ever come from homes where there is this indifferent apathy and unconcerned Christianity uh, portrayed. Now, I think there's a logical answer to that, reason for that. I think those people who come from homes that are godly and deeply committed, a person who's raised in that kind of environment says to himself, this is real, this is genuine, I need to give my life to this. A person who's raised in a home where there is really no commitment to Christ, no evidence of God, that person has this hunger for something different. He knows what it's not supposed to be like. But that person who grows up in a home where there is this indifferent Christianity, this nominal Christianity, this hypocrisy, these games we play, that child grows up and says to himself, there's really nothing to this. This is just a game. And so Paul writes to Timothy and says, you've seen that unfeigned faith in your background. You know it's genuine. It's the real thing. And you've got to trace your shaping and molding back to that. You say, well, I'm just his mother. I'm just these kids' mother. I sure would, have helped, sure would have helped me if I had some help from their father. It's interesting to me that Paul never mentions Timothy's father nor his grandfather. And the weight of biblical scholarship is that these men were not even saved. And God uses circumstances in our physical background I tell you, everything that's ever happened to you, God uses as a building block to shape you. And so God took Jeremiah down to the potter's house. And he saw that potter working on the wheel. And he saw the fire and the furnace and the file and the hammer. And all of a sudden it dawned on him, this is the way God shapes Israel and Samuel Rutherford cried, Oh, what I owe to the fire and the furnace and the file of God. So that everything in your life, he never misses, he never uh, wastes a circumstance. Your own physical makeup, God uses. I've heard Ron Dunn say again and again that he despised his high pitched voice. Sounds a lot like mine, as a matter of fact. He said, I listen to those preachers like Adrian Rogers, you know, and Joel Gregory, it sound like God, you know. Man talking way down, you know, and boy. He said, I just envy them. And he got into this ministry of tape ministry, you know, Ron Dunn's ministry now is primarily audio tapes. And one day a guy who understands something about voice and that kind of thing called him. He said, Ron, you have a perfect voice for tapes. He said, a woman could put your tape in the, in the tape player and go off to the back of the house and understand every word you said. You have a, a perfect voice for tape ministry. God never wastes a circumstance. I mean, He even used Paul's Roman citizenship. How do you think He preached in Caesar's palace? His Roman citizenship and he even spared His life. And he came to Moses on the backside of the desert and he said, Now you're ready. You take that stick that's in your hand and you head off down to Egypt. And what was that stick? And where did it come from? It was a symbol of his failure. 
He made it out there on the backside of the desert. It was kind of a souvenir of his mistake. I tell you, God can even use those symbols of your failure. For He uses everything in your physical background to shape you. Secondly, He uses special friends. Now Paul speaks to Timothy, writes to Timothy like this, My beloved brother. But we all know that he wasn't his brother. But he was a man that, brought Paul, that God brought into Paul's life to shape him and prepare him. Every Paul needs a Timothy. And every Timothy needs a Paul. We are what we are because of our friends. Somebody asked Kipling the secret of his life. He said, I had a friend. On another occasion, Paul said, God who comforts us in all of our sorrows comforted me by the coming of Titus. No wonder Longfellow said, Oh, how good it feels, the hand of a friend. And we understand what Oliver Wendell Holmes meant when he said, Fame is like a scentless sunflower with gaudy crown of gold. But friendship is like a breathing rose with sweet in every fold. I look back over my life to thank God for the friends He brought into it. I hope I can say this without getting emotional this morning. I'm a better man because I have Dennis Huggins as a friend. He's taught me some things about faith that I've never learned at the seminary. We are what we are by our friends. And I believe that the characteristic of a friend, there are three or four. One, he's a person who voluntarily sacrifices for you. He'll give you the shirt off his back. You don't have to beg him for a favor. He's always there. He's a person who will defend you before others. Doesn't matter what others say about you, he's going to be there to defend you. He's a constant source of encouragement. He just makes you feel like that you're important. Now, everybody can be a friend. As you look back over your life, you may call some names in your mind of special friends. You need to write them a letter today or call them and let them know how important they are to you. And I want to speak just a moment to these young people who are sitting here at the front. Be careful who are are your friends. You hang on to these people who come to this church or who are committed to Christ. You hang on to them because your friends shape your life. And you tell me what kind of friends you have, I'll tell you what kind of person you're going to become. And those who understand the sciences of social behavior are telling us that in the age of the 90s, the only way we're going to ever impact the world with the gospel is through friendships. And the more the divorce rate increases, say those experts of the sciences of human behavior, the greater is the need of friends. It's called friendship evangelism. And so God brings into our lives special friends. Not only does God shape our lives through physical environment and friendships, He shapes our lives through the giving of spiritual gifts. 
Now Paul says to Timothy, you need to stir up this gift of God, which came to you by the laying on of hands. Now what he was talking about was the bestowment of a of spiritual gift that comes at the point of one's conversion. Every person who comes to Christ, who experiences salvation, has an endowment of a supernatural ability. It is a supernatural gift called a spiritual gift. Now, I'm not talking about natural abilities. Somebody might ask you, you know, what is your gift? You might say, well, I can sing a little bit. But I'm not talking about natural abilities. That's natural ability. It's something that is outside of ourselves. It is something that God bestows upon every believer, a spiritual gift. Now I want you all to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Because Paul is going to discuss the matter of spiritual gifts. Known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now he's saying this, that if you've come to the place where you've made Jesus the Lord of your life, it is because the Holy Spirit has enabled it. And then he talks about the enabling of the Holy Spirit and the impartation of gifts. He says there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. And there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things and all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit, here it is, for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, and to another faith by the same Spirit, to other gifts of healing by the one Spirit. And to another, the of miracles, to another, prophecy, to another, the distinguishing of spirits, to another, various kinds of glossolalia tongues, and to another, the interpretation of glossolalia. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as He wills. Now, the emphasis here is upon the endowment, watch this. This is not something that a person earns, a righteous person earns from God. It's something that a gracious God bestows upon a saved sinner. It's not something that a person works up. It's something that God hands down. And it, has, it tells you nothing about the possessor. I wish that that person who keeps riding me, bless her heart, watches me on television, telling me that I need one last step, and that's to get the, the gift, quote, end quote. You know what I'm talking about. Well, you can't work that up. I mean, it's not something you work up. It's something you hand down. God hands down. It's not, it tells you nothing about the possessor, It tells you of the graciousness of the giver. And there is no definite article before the gift. It's a gift. The gift is the Holy Spirit. God gives us the Holy Spirit. And when He gives us the Holy Spirit, He gives us a gift or gifts. 
for the manifestation of the Spirit of God and for the edification and the work and of the common good within the church. Now here's the point. When you got saved, God gave you a gift or gifts. And you'll never be what God planned you to be in eternity unless you discover that gift and manifest it. Now these gifts can be abused. On the one hand, we can magnify the gift to the point of, of, of neglecting the giver. And we can focus on a gift of the Holy Spirit and make that an idol and pray and seek it forever. That's to abuse spiritual gifts. On the other hand, we abuse spiritual gifts when we neglect the spiritual gift. And I dare say that probably half of the people in this congregation this morning don't have the slightest clue what I'm talking about. And it's basic to New Testament Christianity. And you need to discover your spiritual gift and begin to exercise it. Amen? I hear one faint. Amen. Thank you for that, Mark. All right. Brag on him and he amens me. Now, there is a first way that God molds and shapes us. A fourth way, that's it. Through our own personal discipline and development. Now watch what Paul says to Timothy. He says, stir up the gift that God has given you. Stir it up. That Greek construction means take that little flame and bring it to a to a blaze. And he's talking about the stewardship that we all have to discipline ourselves and develop our own Christian life. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He said, bring your salvation to its full completion. That's your responsibility. But God works in you to will and do His good pleasure. So He creates in us a desire and an impetus to, 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 to do this work of developing our own lives as Christians with distant development. I don't suppose there's anybody here who couldn't have, you couldn't stand a little bit more of what you have. Money? I could use a little. Greg, Jeff uh, agrees with that. I can identify with that cartoon old guy was writing out his bills and he said to his wife, Honey, he said, we belong to that middle income, upper outgo group. <laughs> more going out than is coming in. I can use a little more talent. I mean, there are a lot of things that I'd like to do better. I could use some more time. A little girl came home from school and told her mother, They've made me chairman of the world. What she was talking about was they made her chairman of a committee to make a geography report. And some of us feel like that we've been made chairman of the world. There are so many responsibilities that are laid on us in these days. Truth is, I'll probably never get any more money. I'll never make much more money in what I'm making, unless y'all want to... <laughs> Fact is, we'll probably never never have any more talents than what we already have as adults. We may fine-tune our talents a little better. We'll never get any more time, 24 hours a day is all anybody will ever have. So what's that leave us? 
It it leaves us to mature and develop through discipline and determination what we already have. And Balcom tells about the the old boy who went into a diner in Washington, D.C. during the war when sugar was rationed. And she gave him some sugar and he tasted his coffee after applying the amount she gave him and said, uh, Say, uh, waitress, could I have some more sugar, please? And she answered him in the language of a typical hash slinger, Honey, just stir what you got. Well, in the, in the simple language of a hash slinger, you ain't doing anything with what you already have. And while we are on our knees begging for more from God, I think I hear him saying, Honey, do something with what you have. And Dwight L. Moody, we've all heard the illustration. Overweight, high-pitched voice, terrible grammar. In fact, I heard a guy say here a while back that he had some sermons that were unedited, preached exactly like he preached them. Dwight L. Moody said, you cannot believe the grammar. He said it was the worst I've ever read. Dwight L. Moody, you've heard the story, went to England, somebody wrote, I find nothing in Dwight L. Moody that can, um, that, that would give me any reason to understand his success. And Dwight L. Moody said that's the secret. Well, one night after he preached, a little old English lady came up to him and said in the typical brutality of English honesty. She said, Mr. Moody, you are absolutely the most ignorant and horrible preacher I have ever heard. Now that'll make you want to dig in there, won't it? (laughs) Preach a series. And Dwight L. Moody looked at the little lady and said, Sister, I'm doing the best I can with what I have. Now let me ask you a question. What are you doing with what you've got? That's a question I want to ask you. And it's a question that everybody has to answer. What are you doing with what you have? And one of these days, I don't understand this, but we'll stand before the Bema and we'll be judged on the basis of how faithful we've been to the gift we've received. And as Rabbi Susha said, the great Jewish rabbi, when I stand before God, he's not going to ask me, Susha, why were you not more like Moses? He's going to ask me, Susha, why were you not more like Susha? And what he meant was, we better do something with what we have because we're accountable for it. Let's pray together. Our Father, I cannot but give thanks for my mother and my daddy 
and for the people who taught me in my church in West Texas, little country town. And I am grateful today for the friends you brought into my life. And I've, I'm thinking of their names now, Lord. And I'm grateful. And I thank you, Lord, that when you saved me, you gave me a gift. And what I am, I am because of the charismata. Father, I know that the responsibility of the stewardship of all that has come into my life is up to me. I haven't done a good job. I pray for your forgiveness. I've had time to study. I just didn't study. I've had time to pray and develop our relationship, and I didn't do it. I'm sorry. I pray, God, that, that you'll help us never to get to the place where we're not becoming. And now, Lord, make clear to us the decisions we need to make publicly. For I pray in Jesus' name, and I ask it for His sake and for Your sake, dear Jesus, dear Lord. Now there are three invitations. There's an invitation this morning for you to come and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. There, everybody here that's been saved came to a point in their life where they turned to Jesus and trusted Him alone for salvation. It's not a matter of membership or joining a church or getting baptized at that point. It's a matter of committing your heart and life to Jesus Christ by faith. It's a point of time experience. If you've never come to that place of surrender and trust, you need to do that today. There may be some of you who need to come and join the church. And if God is leading you to put your life here, unless you do it, we're, we're in bad shape here. We're, we're, we're lost without you. You need to come not only for your sake, but for ours, to put your life with us. Or maybe you just need to come and rededicate your life to the stirring up of what you already possess. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come. <laughs>